this is going to get back to a theme that we talked about earlier, which is the idea that when you're dealing with Ben Adam Lechavero, with sins amongst man and his fellow man, then you're talking about not merely punishment, but consequences, the law of unintended consequences. I will see to what degree this actually applies. I will see from the following story. Briefly, of course, many of you are familiar with the fact that Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Yezer ben who was from the giants of his generation, Rabbi Yezer ben Horkinus was from the primary disciples of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the leader of his generation. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was, was almost unparalleled. Just like Hillel in his generation, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the leader of the next generation. He was also the leader of the generation of the Chorban. He's the one that went out to Vespasian and made the deal with him. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the leader of his generation. He was the greatest uh, you know, leader and sage and the disciple of Hillel and Shammai. Amongst his main pupils, one of the greatest, possibly the greatest, or maybe the second greatest or the third greatest, was Rebeliezer ben Horkinus. The story of how Rebeliezer ben Horkinus became the great sage is in itself a fascinating story, which we're not going to be able to go into. How he became his beginnings. Just like Rebekiva had very humble beginnings. The beginnings of Rebeliezer ben Horkinus were also Fascinating story. Oh, 40, 40, uh, 40, uh, 40 yeah, yeah. Hill was 40, 40, and 40, 40 Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and Rabbi Akiva. Right. Yeah, yeah, but Rabbi Yezid ben Horkinus wasn't that. But his, his beginnings were also very interesting. However, he became one of the greatest disciples of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, possibly the greatest. And he was called Rabbi Yezid Hagod. What's even more fascinating, though, is that he's the one that went into Kherim. They put him into Kherim. Rebbe Yezid ben Horkinus was considered also one of the major teachers of Rabbi Akiva. Is he arguing about the ovens? Yeah. So now, let's, I want to go through a little bit of the story about the argument of the ovens. Now, the other great sage of, I guess you could say, an equal caliber with Rebbe Yezid in the same Sanhedrin was Rabbi Yishu ben Hananya. Rabbi Yishu ben Hananya and Rabbi Yezid were the two main, main people very often. They argued with each other whatever it is. In fact, they were the two, the two um, main rebbeim, I guess you could say, although there were others, of Rabbi Akiva. Then Rabbi Akiva became a colleague with them as well. As Rabbi Akiva started off as their disciple, but then he became their colleague. Now, the story of the oven in Bavmetziyad Afnotes Ahmed Bey is rather obscure argument. We're not going to go into the actual argument itself about the oven. Whatever it is, there's another thing about Rabbi Yezid, which is that he was also a a follower of the school of Beishamai, which is another reason why the Gemara sometimes refers to him as a Shmusi. He was excommunicated, not in the greatest degree of Cherem, but of, uh, of a minor excommunication. How did it occur? With the following. Rabbi Yezid, to buttress his opinion, gave all kinds of responses. And they didn't accept it. Now he was outvoted by the majority. Omer Lohem, so he says to them, Malocha Kmoisi Chorubze Yochiach, if I am right, let this carob tree become uprooted. Neka Chorubim become Meya Amo. Miraculously, the carob tree was uprooted. The Amri Arba may have some question as to how much it was uprooted. Again, there's some, some symbolism with, with all of these numbers here. We're going to go through quickly. 
They were unimpressed. They said, one can't prove how long is from uprooted carob trees. Let the stream prove that I'm correct. The stream started going uphill. They were unimpressed again. If I am right, let the walls of the Beis Hamedrash show that I'm correct. He took coastly Beis Hamedrash lipo. The Beis Hamedrash walls were about to collapse and fall in. Gor Abahim Rabbi Yeshua, Yeshua, as I mentioned earlier, was the colleague who was also of uh, equal or almost equal stature to Rabbi Yezer. And Rabbi Yeshua started to get angry with the walls. Omer Lehem, and he said to the walls of the Beis Hamedrash on their verge of collapse, if Talmidei Chachomim are fighting and vanquishing one another in argument, what's it your concern to mix in? In honor of Yeshua, the walls didn't collapse. However, but in the, the honor of Rebel Yezer, they couldn't revert back to their original state either. They're still precariously perched. again. If I am right, let let the heavens prove it. Why are you sages arguing against Rebeliezer? Don't you know that he's always right? The haloch is always the way he says it is. Ahmad Rabbi Yeshua, again, it was the same Rabbi Yeshua, Al Raglov, that he got up, Torah is not in heaven, and therefore we will ignore the heavenly voice as well. Sinai was already given at Sinai for us to determine based on the halachic criteria and tools which we were given. Therefore, we don't listen to a baskal, Shekvar Kosafta, Bahar Sinai. The Torah, you Hashem have already written in the Torah that we are to follow the majority in all doubts, and therefore we can't let ourselves be swayed by heavenly voices. Again, it's a fascinating Gemara and it has to all be understood, but that's not the part that we're going for. I'm just going through the whole story just to get to the next part, which is really what's going to be important. This part is also fascinating. One day, and he asked El Yonovi what was happening in the heavens as this as this tremendously cataclysmic argument was occurring. You know, they're arguing over an obscure oven, but you know, the heavens itself were storming over this oven. What was Hashem doing when all of this was occurring? So Omar Lacey answered, Kochaich. God was laughing. My children won. They vanquished me. That day, because Rebeliezer still retained his insistence on, on his halacha. In other words, Rebeliezer was very stubborn. He was very firm in maintaining his position. Actually, the others were stubborn. Yeah, they were both very stubborn. What they did was they took all of Rebbe Yezra's things that he said were tar and they burnt them in fire. V'nimnu Allah, they took a vote, u'barchu. Barchu is just a nice way of saying they blessed him, which means they didn't bless him, they did the opposite. 
Now, the problem was, if you have, if you have to excommunicate Rebbe Yezer, you're rather scared to do it. Who's going to be the one that will be able to delicately and diplomatically tell him that we decided to excommunicate him? Because they're afraid of Rebbe Yezer. Let me go. Less an unworthy person comes to Yodiyah and tells him in a manner which isn't befitting. Who knows what Rabbi Eliezer will do? He could destroy the world. In order to diplomatically do it, he dressed himself in black. And he put on the black towels. Sat away from Rebbeleezer on the ground four amas away to show, to indicate that I can't come near you dressed in black. Amrlo Rebbeleezer, when Rebbeleezer saw him, he said to him, Akiva Mayoimiyomayim. What's today different than the other days? Amrlo, so Rabbi Akiva said to him humbly, Rabbi, my master, Kemedumli Shechaverim Bedeilimimach. I think it seems to me that the colleagues are are distancing themselves from you. When Rabbi Yezer heard this, he ripped his garments like an act of mourning, like Kriya, which is one of the things also part of the Cherem, the Cholatz Menolov, and just again like, like on Tisha B'av, he took off his shoes, the Nishmat, and he went off of his seat, the Yoshev al Akarka, and he sat down on the ground. He sat on the ground. Zolgu Ein of the Mois, and tears began to flow from his eyes. In other words, he accepted, he knew what the consequences were, and he accepted the consequences. At that moment, because of his tears, the world was smitten, it says. The olives, the wheat, the barley, the, this, the dough became sour, whatever it is. And it goes on to say different things as well that occurred that day. First wide line. The Afrab and Gamliel, now you have to remember, although we were talking about these giants, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva apparently at this point already was of the caliber of being a colleague. Remember, Rabbi Akiva began by learning by Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Yeshua, now apparently he was a colleague of theirs. The head of the, the Sanhedrin, though, was Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the one that had to concur and had to ultimately put the stamp of the Sanhedrin's, you know, uh, approval on all these proceedings that were occurring, which was the excommunication of Rebel Yezer. You talk about excommunicating one of the greatest sages of the generation. I mean, it's an unbelievable phenomenon. Rebbe Gamliel had to be the one to do it. This is over his... The oven. Again, this is a very... Uh, right. This is an obscure subject. I do have to tell you, though, there are those that see a lot of other symbolisms here as well, which it's possible is an underlying thing that had to do with the issue as to whether they should revolt against the Romans. But the question with the oven that breaks in different parts, being torn, was a traveling thing? Maybe the soldiers did it. It, it might make sense because if Rabbi Akiva was already a colleague, then this must have occurred around the year 115, 120, at the earliest, if not possibly later, where there was a rebellion then, and there was a little bit of an issue as to who was supported and who didn't support could be this may have related to some of those issues as well and was couched in these more obscure terms. Uh, again, it's not, I mean, obviously there's a halachic issue as well, but it might have had greater ramifications as well, possibly. I don't know. But now, Rabbi Gamliel, during the, when these events occurred, happened to have been on a ship. 
Again, why was he on a ship? Usually meant on some sort of a diplomatic mission to Rome. He was on his way back from some mission on a boat. As he was coming back, a huge wave came and was about to inundate the, the ship and um, cause it to capsize. Omar, as soon as he saw the wave coming, he understood what's happening. It seems to me, I would think, that this wave that's coming to, to swallow me up is only because somehow or other Rebbe Yezabed Horkness is angry and his rage is causing the oceans to, to rage as well and it's coming to get me because I'm the head of the Sanhedrin that stamped the approval on his excommunication. So Rebbe Gamliel, before the wave was about to come and capsize in Omad al-Raglov, he got on his feet and says, Omar, Lord of the Universe, you know that all that I have done regarding this Rebeliezer affair is not for my own honor. It wasn't politics, as you just said. You know that this isn't politics that we're talking about over here. Because if that's the case, then for embarrassing and insulting Rebeliezer, I deserve to die. But I didn't do it for my glory. Not for the glory of myself, nor the glory of my my home, my household, because Rabbi Gamliel, maybe not being the greatest sage, only was Nasi of the Sanhedrin on account of the fact that he is a generation of descendant of Hillel and his father, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel and Rabbi Gamliel Hazokin. I'm doing this only for your honor, God. So that there shouldn't be arguments increasing amongst the Jews. We have a principle, you can't have factions amongst the Jews. You can't have someone going up saying, I know that I'm right. That was enough to stay the wrath of the waves. Now, the next part of the story, though, is also very interesting. I neglected to tell you another relationship here, which is that the wife of Rabbi Eliezer, Hagodl, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus, happened to have been the sister of Rabbi Gamliel. In other words, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Gamliel were actually brothers-in-law. He married Nossi's sister. I mean, he was, he was a very great person. So he married the sister of Rabbi Gamliel. Her name was Imo Shalom. From that story and on, she being the wife of Rabbi Yezer, knowing the pain that he's going through, never allowed him to daven tachlum. Why? Because she was concerned that if he ever falls on his face in Davins and, so to speak, spills his guts to Hashem and says what's in his heart, what's troubling him, it'll cause in Shemayim a kind of a kitshru, an accusation against her brother, Rabbi Gamliel. So from that day on, from the wave stopped. He was on the way home. The wave stopped, but she was afraid always that any day he could daven. Who knows what it'll have an effect. It'll be a sword hanging over over Rabbi Gamliel. So therefore she never let him daven daven tachlun. Hau yom Again, not having a calendar like we have nowadays, you have to calculate each month based on the lunar calculations if it's a mole or a chaser, if it's two days Rosh Chodesh or one day Rosh Chodesh or which day Rosh Chodesh is supposed to be on when they did it by Bezdin. She made a mistake. And there was a day that she thought that it was Rosh Chodesh 
there's no Tachnun anyway. Ikadamri, others say, Osa Anya Vikoi Abova, Afiko Le Rifta. Another shot was that it wasn't Rosh Chodesh, she wasn't mistaken, but she went to the door to give money to a poor person, to give food rather to a poor person. As a result, he finished his Shimon Esrei, her husband, Rebel Yezer. When she returned into the room, Ashkach said, Alante. She came back to the room and she already found that he was davening Tachlon. He's already fallen on his, on his face. So she says, Ay vey, I, every day she stopped him, she always interrupted him somehow um, to stop davening Tachlon. This day she forgot to stop him. Omru so she says, Ay, kum, get up already. You've already killed my brother. So she tells her husband, you killed my brother. Sure enough, there was shortly an announcement made from the house of Rabbi Gamliel that he died. Omar lost, he asked his wife, again, his wife being the sister of Rabbi Gamliel, she comes from a very prestigious household. How did you know this? How did you know that this was going to happen? What are you, a prophet that you knew that, that your brother is dead? Omar she says, This is my tradition, my Kabbalah that I have received from my my father and grandfather's home. Call All the gates, all the gates are closed except the gate of Ono, the gate of oppression. In other words, even the gates of prayer when they're closed to Hashem, when they're closed to man, Hashem closes them. But those people that are doing this heartfelt cry of oppression, that they're abused and they're oppressed, those gates, those gates and those tears penetrate the heavens and therefore I know that even if all the gates are closed but when you cry and you feel this pain and your agony and your suffering that penetrates the heavens and has an effect what do we see from this story we see a lot of things fascinating story and it's a Gemara that has to be studied on its own which I don't plan on doing right now I'm just again showing you the same point how it's not a question are you great or not great they were certainly right I mean, the Gemara tells us that they were right. The Gemara is not trying to say any of this, that they were making a mistake. They were right in what they did, but these are consequences. Rebbe Eliezer's cries and his tears have an effect, even against people as great as Rabbi Gamliel. And Rabbi Gamliel, when Rebbe Eliezer was given the message that he was being excommunicated, a wave almost, you know, inundated the boat of, of Rabbi Gamliel. And how come? Rabbi Akiva himself said, who is going to tell Rebbe Eliezer that he's excommunicated? better do it gently, break the news, and even with this breaking the news gently, it still had an effect. That's the answer. The answer to the how come is it has an effect. Ben Odom L'chavero, as we've said before, is not something which is a punishment for a sin. It's a consequence. It's when you leave an iron plugged into the wall and hot, and you leave it on the floor, and a baby gets burnt, it's not a punishment for your sin of negligence. It's a consequence of your sin of negligence. And therefore, even good people can inadvertently suffer the consequences of sins of The point is the power of sins of how different it is than sins where Hashem has to punish. These are consequences. Remember we said, in the days of Davra Amal, they could have been tzaddikim. But there were, the effects of slander were such that people suffered. Bar Kamsa was according to some tzaddikim. He was an apikairus. He was whatever. He was a rodef. His embarrassment, which was uncalled for at the time, le- leads to consequences. 
is the consequence of the suffering that people have. And it works in both directions, as we'll see how it works in both directions. This is just an example of Rebeliezer's pain, who was a tzaddik, affecting the, the lives of other people, whether it was Rabbi Gamliel, by his tears and crying. We'll see how it affected something else. Let's take a look at the other story, this one you're more familiar with. Sanhedrin Sam Chesam and Aleph, on the right side of the page. Again, we're going to uh, this one. I'm going to run through even quicker. Now that you know this part of the story of Rebbeliezer, you could finally appreciate the less rest of the story. The rest of the story, of course, was what happens when Rebbeliezer was old and sick. Last word of the first line, Vatanya, Kishachol Rebbeliezer, when Rebbeliezer became sick, Nichnasu Rabbi Akiva v'Chaveru Levakro. Then Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues went in to pay a, 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 a convalescent call. They, he sat inside and they sat waiting on the outside. Again, this was part of the fact that they went to visit him. Apparently, this is many years later, after he's been excommunicated, and they weren't supposed to have dealings with him. And we're going to skip the first mm -hmm. few lines, which was as to... What was the mental stability of Rebeliezer at the time, which was which was at first in question, but it was rather shown that he was that he was quite aware of what was his surroundings were. So we'll skip that part. It's not again to us. And uh, they entered into him. We'll skip a few lines down. When the sages saw that he was he had his presence of mind, because they were concerned whether he had it or not. Nichnesu, they did enter into his, into his bedchamber, but they sat four cubits away from his bed, again because he was in the state of excommunication. Omar lay, rather Omar lehem when he saw them, Loma Bosan, so he asked him, why did you come? <laughs> right, well, that's right. Because when someone's excommunicated, you have to keep your distance. Well, that was his way of showing that he was in the state of excommunication. So he asks him, why did you come? So Omar, Le, Omar Le, we came to study Torah from you. Omar Le, so he said to them, so why did you come till now? Again, Rebbe Leezer was the great sage that had so much to offer, but once he was in excommunication, they no longer came to him. Amrulais, they said, they gave the kind of a lame excuse. Uh, we just didn't have time. Amrulahen, at that point, he said to them, By me, it would be a wonder in my mind if any of you are going to die natural deaths. That's what he said to them. He wasn't trying to curse them. Apparently, he just made it as a statement. He didn't, he didn't say, I curse you, not. He says, it, it would be a pill by me if you die natural deaths. At which point, Omer lo Rabbi Akiva shalimahu. So Rabbi Akiva, his, one of his primary students and colleagues at this point, said, what about me? How am I going to die? Omer lo's, like, will I die a natural death? So Rabbi Akiva wanted to know, will I die a natural death? So he answered, shalcho koshem mishalen. Yours is going to be the worst. You're going to suffer the most excruciating torture of all of them. And he explains now why. He takes his two arms 
he places them on his heart. These two arms are like the two poles of the Sefer Torah that are rolled together. That are rolled together. That was a closed book. Again, in those days, they wouldn't use the example of a closed book like we have nowadays. They learned off of scrolls. So when you want to symbolize a closed scroll, he puts his arms together saying, my, my heart is like a Sefer Torah that's closed up. What does that mean? I learned a great deal of Torah from my, he was one of, I said earlier, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai's main students, probably the main student. Pirkei Ovis discusses the five main students. Of, so it says that Rabbi Eliezer, according to one version, was the greatest. With all the Torah that I learned, I didn't, take away from my rebellion as much Torah as a dog laps up from the sea. That's how little Torah I was able to take from them. And as much as I've taught, I didn't teach more to my students than what you take out with one drop from a medicine dropper that goes into a, um, into a whatever. And then he goes on to say how many different halachas he taught. And then he says that out of all of my students, I had so much to offer, and the only one that even showed the curiosity to ask the right questions was Akiva ben Yosef. And therefore, he was in effect trying to say to him that you, Akiva, that had the most to gain from everybody else, and you didn't take advantage of it, for that reason you're going to suffer the greatest, the greatest um, torture. And then it goes on, and it talks about how they asked him a number of questions in Halacha, and he answered, Tahar, 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 and he died with the word Tahar on his lips. And they said, his neshama left him in the purity of those final words of Tara. At that point, last few lines, Ahmed Rabbi Yeshua, Raglav Rabbi Yeshua, again, was the other colleague of Rabbi Yezer. Remember, he was the one that was originally the one that got up always, and he said, always the same expression, Ahmed Rabbi Yeshua, Raglav Rabbi Yeshua, got up on his feet, and he said to the wall, stop, stop falling in. Here, Omad Rabbi Yishol Raglov Amar Huter Haneder, Huter Haneder. The the decree is annulled. The decree against Rabbi Yishua, his excommunication, has now been revoked. Then it goes on by his funeral and how Rabbi Kiva cried and referred to him and says, Ovi Ovi Rechavi Sol, which was the same kind of uh, of an, of a eulogy that Elisha said about Elio Anovi, my father, my father, chariot of Israel and its horsemen. I have much money to exchange, but I don't have a money exchanger to help me. Rabbi Akiva felt very deeply the loss of Rabbi Yeshua, of Rabbi Yezer. So in other words, Rabbi learned a great deal, as we see, from, from, Rabbi, from Rabbi Yezer. He also learned a great deal from Rabbi Yeshua. Those were his two main teachers. But what do we see? We see from here the agony that Rabbi Yezer felt, although it was a necessary agony, which they subjected him, and they tried doing it as sensitively as possible. And as great as they are, it wasn't going to help. Because the greatness of Rabbi Yezer was just so great that his personal suffering, his pain, has to have an effect. And all those people that inadvertently cause his pain are going to be on the receiving end of that, of the, all those consequences. It's mind-boggling, this concept of how Bain Adam L'chavero he, he, just, he just can't stop it. There's just almost no way of stopping it. 
It's a no-win situation. In fact, I'm going to learn this from Chaim Shmulevitz piece that I have in the middle here backwards. The point I'm saying, that's, that's Reb Chaim Shmulevitz's main point, is that when you're dealing with Ben Odom L'chavero, sins between man and his fellow man, you're talking about consequences. Now he doesn't bring down these more this I added to, to um, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz's word, just to show you to what degree this idea applies. We're going to get back to the ones he uses, and from here this is going to take us to even a, a higher level of understanding. But I'm going to learn his piece a little bit backwards, in order to, again, maintain this, this idea. If you look in the last paragraph, in the middle, he brings down another interesting story. Also a very fascinating story, which, which we can't go into the whole story itself. Very briefly, Rav Kahana had to run away from the land of, of Bovel on account of uh, so it was a, it was a political thing, a governmental thing. Someone died that he had to call, they had to there's a Moser, whatever it is. Rav Kahana was a little bit of a zealot. So he runs to, to Eretz Yisrael to learn Torah. They sent him to Eretz Yisrael. At that time, Rabbi Yochanan was the premier sage of Eretz Yisrael. He was the greatest sage, Rabbi Yochanan, the great Rabbi Yochanan. This is really the first generation of the Amoroim, which would place this roughly about three generations after Rabbi Akiva. You know, next generation of Rabbi Nasi. This is like the next generation is about roughly two, three generations afterwards. First era, first generation of the Amoroim. Rabbi Yochanan at this point though was an old man and it says, the way the story goes, I'll just briefly tell you the story outside, it's more about the comic of Zion, that he was an old man and his eyelids, his eyelashes were very large and covered his eyes. He couldn't really see as a result. I never heard of this condition, you ever heard of such a condition? Oh, you're an eye doctor. But somehow or other, it would just like droop down. It's the eyelids, the eyebrows, the eyelashes, I don't know. Weak muscle, maybe. Ah, so the skin. Yeah, okay. So it obscured his vision. It seems... Yeah. Okay. It seems that what happened was that he needed his students, when he wanted to see something, to, with, with like tweezers or pincers, they would pick it up in order they should be able to see. So he gave a shear, and Rav Kahana astounded him with his brilliant questions. And since he was a newcomer, he says, I want to see who was this person that asked all these questions. Now, this, is the story of, this is the story of the cushions. This is the story of the question that we talked it, about. Who was asking the questions? Rav Kahana was the one asking the questions. Rav was the one with the eyebrows? No, Rav Yochan was the one. Rav was the master giving the, the lecture. And Rav Kahana sat in the back row and was given all those cushions and right. moved up. Right? Originally he was told by Rav in Babylon as part of his punishment of going into exile, keep your mouth zipped, don't ask any questions. And he suffered the embarrassment of, of never being able to ask questions. Finally, he was given the opportunity to ask questions and he asked one question after the other, and Rabbi Yochum was just astounded with his brilliance. He says, move him up, move him up. Finally, Rav Kana was moved up seven rows, and Rabbi Yochum was seated on seven cushions. Rav Kana was sitting on the ground, and he says, you know what, give him another cushion, and another cushion, and another cushion. Finally, Rabbi Yochum was on the bottom, Rav Kana was sitting up there, and he said, who is this brilliant sage who asked me so many questions, able to slug me up everything I said? Let me see him. So they, they took these uh, tweezers, and they, and they opened up his eyes 
in order they should be able to see who Rav Kana. And he happened to see, see that Rav Kana had a split lip at the time. As a result, he had the appearance, I guess, based on the way his lip was split, that he was like smiling. So Rabbi Yochum's eyes are lifted up. The first sight that he sees is Rav Kana smiling at him. You can imagine this after all these questions. Rabbi Yochum's on the bottom, Rav Kana's on top. He has all these questions. He says, Who is this brilliant sage? And he's the master. And this is the student. And the student is looking at him, smiling at him, like smirking. It's like he had a grin on his face. So he had a smirk. As a result, Rabbi Yochum felt terrible. And he felt greatly insulted. And as a result of that, Rivkana suffered whatever, a heart attack or something, Rivkana died. Says Rivkana Shmulevitz, what did Rivkana do? He did nothing. What, what was his fault? What should he have done? What was his guilt? What was his sin? What was his sin on having a split lip that Rabbi Yochanan thought that he was laughing? It was a mistake. And as a result, Rabbi Yochanan caused his own suffering. For this he should die? For this does Rivkana deserve punishment? He doesn't deserve it. Kshita, Shechofim, he called Pesha. It's quite obvious. No one could say that Rivkana sinned in a manner deserving of death. It's impossible to say such a thing. He's, he's innocent. He's blameless of sin, of guilt. But he is the one that caused suffering to somebody else. He's the one that caused Chalishus Hadas, embarrassment, public embarrassment for Rabbi Eichman. And he got burnt. When you put your hand in a fire, it gets burnt. Says Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, this is his term, Bein Olam L'chaver is a fire was burnt. That's the Yisoyed. The Yisoyed of Bein Olam L'chaver is a fire was burnt. It burns. Rav Kana got burnt. That's all it was. What we see from here is to what degree this occurs. Not if you intentionally and actually cause someone else. But even if you cause about, again, the fact that it was Rav Kana and Rav Yochlan is not you and I. But the fact is that whatever level you're going to place them on, nevertheless, Rav Kana was certainly blameless. But so what? Since he's the one that brought about the fire, he's the one that got burnt through that fire. For that reason, Chazal said, he brings down an interesting Yalkut. As it says, Interesting idea. It says, Binyamin brought about an unnecessary renting of the garments of the other, of his brothers. When they came back from Egypt, after they were captured with the, with Binyamin had the, the Dachar in his, in his sack. So as a result, they felt bad that the Yomun was accused. So for that moment in time, the Yomun seemed to have been the guilty one. They go, oh, because of the Yomun, look what we have to do now, look at the problems we have. And they rent their garments. The Yomun was certainly blameless, but it was paid back many generations later that during the decree of the persecution of Haman against the Jews, Mordechai, descendant of the Yomun, had to rent his garments as well. Vayikra Mordechai is begodav. Obviously, Chazal aren't trying to highlight over here that Binyamin is guilty and therefore Mordechai also had to suffer pain. You cause and effect. Sin and punishment is one thing. This is cause and effect. 
Binyamin was not guilty. He didn't steal it. So there's no guilt in Binyamin. It was just found by him. It wasn't his doing at all. Nevertheless, he caused pain to the rest of Klal Yisrael at the time, to the rest of his brothers, to, to, to the point was that they had to rip their garments for nothing. It was paid back in Shushan Abira that Mordechai, his descendant also. That's what we're saying. Ben Odom L'chavero is a fire. Now though, we're going to finally be able to get back to some of the, the other ideas as well. First, again, let's take a look. Earlier we saw the story of Rebel Yezer on Bav Metzinun Testament days. Let's take a look at Bav Metzinun Testament Aleph about a person's relationship to his own wife. But we see so far, I think people have to realize that through inadvertent and callous remarks that you didn't intend someone else's suffering, you do cause people suffering. That's really the lesson. The lesson is how often it is that you do cause people unintended, not deliberate, undel- you know, without any kind of forethought and, and bad malicious intent, but you do cause people harm and you cause them suffering. You have to pay for those consequences. That's what we're saying. We see from this the reverse, the positive effects of peace and harmony and brotherhood is also have inadvertent kind of, of positive consequences. And even in the generation of Achav, they, they didn't suffer casualties. The door Hafloga, rebellion against God, but you know what, they got along. They didn't deserve to be destroyed. So it has the same inadvertent positive effects as well as the negative consequences. Now let's see another example of this story, but let's get more to the heart of it in terms of husband and wife. If you look on the top right of this page, let's see, we're moving along in a fairly decent clip here. Omar of Adobarava, it's Gomorrah Ksuvis Samach Beis Amid Beis. Omar Rav, Zudivrei Rebeliezer. These are the words of Rebeliezer. Interesting, this is Rebeliezer being quoted here. What's it referring to? It's referring to the, the Gomorrah talks about, the Mishnah talks about in Ksubis. What is the obligation, the marital obligation that husbands have to their wives in terms of intimacy? The Gomorrah tells us there are different levels, different stages. We're still on the same. Depending on, on the kind of business occupation you have, that's the kind of frequency you have to have. In other words, share Ksus is one of the obligations that you have to provide your wife with share, Ksus and Aina, food clothing, shelter, as well as marital intimacy. And that frequency depends really on what your physical abilities are, which depends to a great degree on what your business occupation is. Traveling salesman is a little different than a person who lives in the lap of luxury. So in those days where people worked very hard, you know, it talks about those that didn't really work, they had a greater obligation. Your average person, your average worker's obligation was twice a week. A Talmud Chacham who learned all the time, his obligation was every Friday night. Other people, traveling salesmen, people, sailors, whatever, they went out to other places. They had less of an obligation. Shimon has to eat twice a week? What? Shimon has to eat twice a week? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's twice a week based uh, in, by rag, regular average worker. So the Gemara says that all of those frequencies are based on Rebbe Liezer. That as far as the, the sages say, that Talmidei Chachomim have a special dispensation. Talmidim in those days to go to learn meant you had to leave home. You had to leave home. 
witness the story of Rabbi Akiva, which we'll shortly get to. That they would leave home and they would go away for a period of time. So whatever happened to their obligations? Says the Gemara, the Chachonim say, they are that the Talmidim would go off to yeshivas and learn for two or three years even without receiving permission of their wives that's what they would do in other words it was a, considered an acceptable thing to without permission go for two or three years and leave your wife now the Gemara is a very fascinating thing which I never really saw anybody mention this, this phrase of the Gemara Omar Rava Rava says the, the rabbis relied on this opinion of Ravada Barava and they would then do it themselves because with their own lives they would do it but the expression here that's used they would do it with their own lives literally means that yes they would rely on it but at the risk of their own lives as Rashi says over here that uh, Rashi says if you look on the top right the sages of our generation relied on Ravado Barava's ruling and they would then leave their wives without permission and they would then do like Ravado Barava's ruling but with their own lives and was at the risk of their lives which would then lead to them suffering dangers with their own lives. They would die, as, and they'd be punished and die. Now it relates to the following story. The following story with Rabbi Mechuzah. He would always learn by Rava who lived in Mechuzah. But he would make it his business to always come home Erev Yom Kippur. Yom Chad Meshachtei Shmaita One Erev Yom Kippur when he was finishing off the last shear the shear drew out a little bit. His wife who was anxiously waiting for her husband to come home would stand by the window and she'd look out the window and she'd say to herself constantly Hashtosi He's about to come. Hashtosi. He's coming. He's coming. He's on his way. He's almost home. And after saying that over and over again, Loasa, he didn't come. She kept saying, Oi, he's coming. He's no, is that him? No, that's not him. And all of a sudden, she felt, you know what? He's not going to come home from this young kipper. And she felt terrible. And as she was looking longingly, anxiously out the window, yearning and waiting for him. He's about to come around the corner. Oh, he's, he's almost here. He's almost here. Oh, he's not going to come. And that disappointment registered by her and she started to cry. And as the tears flowed down her face, Havi Yosef the Igra, her husband, Rabbi Chumi, was sitting in the attic learning, Ifchis Igre Mitusei The ceiling caved out, collapsed from underneath him. He fell through the floor and he died. What we see from all of this, if you cause someone else suffering, no matter what your thoughts were, 
It's like putting your hands in a fire. It's a consequence. Good intentions won't help. Good intentions don't help when you put your hands in a fire. In other words, the dangers that occur when you sin against your fellow man is a law of nature. Just as fire burns, sinning against your fellow man burns. It's a law of nature. Good intentions can't help. Just as fire burns, that's nature. As I said earlier, when you plug in the iron and you're negligent and careless and the child suffers a burn, is it because of a sin and punishment? It's a consequence. It's a law of nature. Fire burns, you can't change nature. There is spiritual nature. It's a law of spiritual nature. You cause suffering, you put your hands in the fire, good intentions won't help you. He then quotes this Gemara that we just learned over here about how Rabbi died. And now, next paragraph, because when you analyze the story, you see that it couldn't possibly be that the Gemara is trying to tell us, look at the punishment for what he did wrong. I mean, she suffered more. She, was, she felt bad that he came home late. What do we say? Better late than never. So therefore, because of her because of his sin, it's never. She certainly didn't want that. She's suffering at worst. Because if she cried because he's late, could you imagine? Could you imagine the amount of tears for losing her husband? If she cried for the late coming of her husband, then she's certainly going to cry for the fact, well, make a little pun about it. If she cried for her husband being late, you can imagine how she's going to cry for her late husband. <laughs> okay, a little bit of a pun over there. Maybe an appropriate one. But if you cry for your husband being late, could you imagine how much tears are shed for his death? So what's pshat? So what kind of a punishment is this? That's the point that we've been saying, says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, which is what the Gemara is teaching us. It's a consuming fire. And when you put your hand in that fire, you're going to get burned. Not as a punishment. This is reality. This is consequence. This is nature. It's a hateva. It's natural law, spiritual natural law. It's not punishment. Therefore, we see all of these other stories how it ties in the same way. This is another place where Chaim Shmuel says I'm just going to do it because he explains it slightly better. Although it was unintentional, but because he unintentionally caused his wife suffering, she died. And therefore, we learn from here, Causing sin between man and his fellow man is not only punishment. It's a fire that burns. Because as an Oynish, she would seemingly suffer more. It would be unfair. Her suffering was like the suffering of Jab, of Eov. You can imagine her suffering when she hears that her husband's dead. 
that he'll never come home. She cried a little bit for coming late. Can imagine when she finally hears the news that he's never coming home. In he doesn't deserve to die. It wasn't it wasn't as punishment, but this is the result. This is the teva. Because when you cause someone else to suffer, you fell into a furnace, you fell into a surface, you die. As a, that's a reaction. It's a consequence. All of the other stories that we now learn make sense in light of this concept. This is the concept that explains all the other stories that we've seen. No matter how great you are, inadvertent things, this is what it causes. Let's now go back to the positive though. Good intentions don't help by Ben Al-Mukhaver. That's the point of Rabbi Chaim Good intentions don't matter. Therefore, when you become more aware by learning these things as Moser Shmuz, you become more aware and self-conscious. Because you have to realize that good intentions don't amount to that much when it comes to this. Let's go back now to finally answer our original question. But this is a question that Rabbi Chaim didn't answer. What does it mean? Magol Yisayom is a Gewaltig Yisayfer written on Masech the Sanhedrin. And in that Gemara, on Rabbi Yudah by Rabbi Lloyd that it says six of his Talmidim cover themselves with one talus although we've adequately explained the Gemara earlier we've explained the Gemara as to what it means but we've never explained why it says in the Gemara Omru Allah al Rabbi Yudah by Rabbi Lloyd they said regarding Rabbi Yudah by Rabbi Lloyd that six of his students will cover themselves with a talus what does that do with Rabbi Yudah by Rabbi Lloyd it says the generation that particular generation why single him out out of this whole generation that his six students did this and why is it being attributed to the Rebbe when it's a Talmudim? So now, you know what, let's take a look at the Gemara first and then we'll go back to the Margolius Hayom. The Gemara is in the large print right below that. The Gemara is in the Dorm and Tessamid Beis. The Ditu the Rabbi Yehuda, and this according to the Margolius Hayom and others I've seen as well, say that this Rabbi Yehuda is Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loy. The Bitu the Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loy apparently was, was very poor as well. After all, if he's living in that generation, we understand. Nafkas, his wife once went out. Nikita's Amra, she bought some wool. Of this Galima, the Hutvi. And she made a kind of a cloak with it. Kad Nafka when she went to the, to the market, Mechasyebe, she would use it to clothe herself. Kad Nafka Rabbi Yehuda when he went out, he would use it umatli, he would go to shul or to base medrash, and he would use this cloak. Interestingly enough, whenever he put it on, he made a special bracha. Praise Hashem who gave me a cloak. And even though this was a very amateurish, kind of uh, coarse, rough garment, he, he made a bracha saying, Oh, thank Hashem for giving me this royal cloak. Zimno Chadosh Gozer Rabbi Shimon Gamliel Tainisa. One day Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel declared a fast. And everybody was supposed to come then to the Beis HaMedrash to partake of the prayers. Rabbi Yudu Lo'asel Bey Tainisa. He didn't come. Amru Lei Lo'isle Kisuye. So they, they told Rabbi Shimon Gamliel that Rabbi Yudu didn't come because he didn't have a jacket. Without a jacket. So he sent him a cloak when he realized how poor he was. He sent him a garment, and he didn't accept it. So the messenger 
he brought in the messenger he pulled up his mat and he said take a look how much gold I have here I'm really a miser I have enough gold if I really want I could I could buy my own I could afford my own I don't want to do it in other words the Gemara is just telling us that a miracle happened where he was able to convince the other person that he wasn't in poverty the point is he didn't want to accept it but that's how poor he was that's the story. Comes the Margolis, Hayomi says, now we can understand what's going on here. Let's take a look back at the Margolis, Hayomi. L'chur havalei l'sapr b'shvach talmidei rabbi yudah bar rabbi loi v'loi mar omr al talmidei rabbi yudah bar rabbi loi shanim hoayu ad kishisha mehem ishtamshu b'tal al-sechon. What the Gemara should have said is, they said regarding the disciples of rabbi yudah bar rabbi loi that they were so poor that the six shared a talus. And nevertheless, they learn Torah. Why then does the Gemara make the praise dependent on the Rebbe by saying, Omru Allah, they said about him, about Rabbi Yudu Bar Rabbi Loi. Says Margoli Yisayam Gvaltik, Ulam Be'emes Hidgishu B'zeh, what they're trying to underline and emphasize, Ki Mida Zumi Koyach Rabbim Hoysa, that they learned this character trait from the Rebbe. Like the Gomorrah in the dorm, which we just quoted, said that his wife would make a garment and they would take turns sharing the cloak, sharing the garment. And Rabbi Yudah would, would always get up and say, Baruch Shatani Mil. He praised it. He felt such great appreciation and gratitude to this garment that his wife made. And he had such a system of sharing with his wife that he would go out and she would go out and she made this, this cloak and sometimes she would go out and cover herself and when he would go out to Davin he would do it because they only had one thing between the two of them and they shared his disciples were able to relate to this beautiful quality that Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi taught them she should tell me them therefore six of his disciples when they had one garment that they were able to chip in and buy together they were able to share it amongst themselves. They were also able to do this kind of sharing. I need it now, I don't need it now, you need it, you take it, you take it. Therefore the Gemara is trying to say that this particular praise and quality should be mentioned in the name of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi because they learned it from their Rabbi Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi. And then he quotes a few other things. Now if we put together this Margolius Hayom with the earlier Rav Chaim Shmulevitz that we learned, we learned from here a remarkable lesson. We said that what was it Shisha Miskasim Vital Sechon? What it really means is not that the Gemara is trying to merely teach us Poshat, like Rashi says, look how poor they were. They couldn't afford, they still learned Torah. Six people couldn't afford that they had to cover themselves with one garment, with one cover, and with such dire poverty, they still learned Torah. They were so desperate they still learned Torah. We explained from Rav Chaim Shmulevitz now, is the reverse lesson that they successfully were able to do it. That means that the six of them were able to share. How could six people share? It's only when you're thinking about the other. When you're thinking about yourself, it's not going to work. Only when you think about the other can it possibly work. Where do they get this from? That's what comes from Margoli Sayyam. The Gemara is saying, they said regarding Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi, that look at what his six students did. When you look at what his six students look what the students did no it's his students that did this because his students learned it from him and the truth is the relationship between husband and wife has to be like this it can't be one of I pull and I take and I schlep and I yank and me me what do you owe me 
entitlement. What am I entitled to? What am I supposed to get out of a marriage? The essence of a marriage is not selfishness. It's selflessness to the other. Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Loy taught his students a lesson in his own marriage. She made a garment, a cloak. Here, you take it now. No, you take it now. You take it now. Baruch Shatani Me'il. I make a bracha, a royal cloak. Then they said regarding Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Loy that six of his students learned this lesson as well. That's what Mechayish Mulevit says. But where did it come from? It came, it came from, from Rabbi Akiva, from, from Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy. Now, finally, I'm ready to say the Chiddush. It's a frightening Chiddush. Let's start off with the Gemara on the lower right. The Gemara on the lower right, Gemara on Yuvam Asamach Beis of Beis is the famous Gemara. Amru, they said, Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students. That was 24,000 students. They all died in one, in one period. It's again very unclear what this period was. But all 24,000 students died. Because they didn't treat each other with proper respect. In fact, Rabbi Osman spoke about it by the Yeshiva dinner, and he talked about the fact about the 12,000 pairs of students. Everybody comments on, what do you mean 12,000 pairs of students? A zug, a couple, 12,000 couples of students. They didn't treat each other with proper respect, therefore they died. We're going to finish the Gemara later, because that's going to be another part of this lesson. But in any case, Chazal tell us that they died during the period between Pesach and Shavuos, that's the period of Sphira, Ashloi Noagu Kovat Zebuzah. They treated each other disrespectfully. Now, someone made me think of this Chiddush. 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva died. Who are these 24,000 students? Well, we all know the famous story of Rabbi Akiva, who was away from his wife for 24 years, and he came back with 24,000 students. Apparently, those 24,000 students were the ones that died. It's logical enough. He came back after 24 years, he had 24,000 students. It's a different Gemara. And the Gemara in Yuvamis tells us about 24,000 students that died. Well, put two and two together, and you get to 24,000 in this particular case. That's what it seems logical enough. What's interesting is that the story of Rabbi Akiva and the 24,000 students is mentioned in two places in Shas. Two places in Shas. This exact same story, with very slightly nuanced differences. One place is the Gemara in the dorm right after the story which we just related about Rabbi Yudah by Rabbi Loy. And the other place that is mentioned is in the Gemara in Ksubis, after the story of all of those husbands that left their wives for all those years and Rabbi Chumi that died as a result of leaving his wife more than he should have. So I was wondering, what is the message in all of that? Is it possible to say that maybe a hint of a criticism is being leveled at Rabbi Akiva. Maybe not directly, but indirectly that a consequence of his leaving his wife for 24 years resulted in some bad consequence. Although Rabbi Akiva himself was not guilty. Rabbi Akiva himself wasn't guilty. His wife gave him permission. You know what? Maybe it led to some sort of an effect on his students, on his disciples. How's that? Because his students didn't learn the lesson that the students of Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loy learned from their Rebbe. Because what's the story with Rabbi Akiva? 
The story is that when he's coming back after 24 years, Rabbi Kiva's wife is trying to come out. And the students are pushing her away. It means that what they learned from their Rebbe was it's okay to leave your wife. Now, the Gemara tells us other great sages that did it, and apparently this is something that was done. But you know what? You're going to suffer the consequences. Rabbi Kiva himself didn't because he did it because she told him to. But there was also a result. The result is that the students never saw how a Rebbe deals with his wife. If anything, they saw that he leaves her. And therefore, when she's coming, push her away. And therefore, the 12,000 couples didn't treat each other respectfully, and as a result, they died. Maybe this is the key to why the Gemara refers to them as 12,000 couples. Shnei Mosor Elif Zugin tell me the Vayulol Rabbi Akiva. 12,000 couples, a Zug, a couple. But they never learned how a Zug has to treat each other. They never learned proper respect. Not that Rabbi Kiva did something wrong. But what we see earlier from all the other stories is even with great people, even when great people are doing necessary things, there are consequences to those necessary things when we're talking about Adam al-Khavera. In fact, the very Gemara that tells us about how Rabbi Akiva left his wife for all those years at least one of the Gemaras, the Gemara in Ksuba Samach Beis, is after all those Gemaras about those Talmidim that left their wives. And what does the Gemara say about that? The Gemara says, Amar Rava, Samchur Rabbanon Adrav Adabarava, Va'avdi Uvdi Benavshayu. Yes, we rely on this ruling of Rav Adabarava to leave your wife, but you're doing it at the risk of your life. Avdi Uvdi Benavshayu. As Rashi says, they died as a result. Yeah, we rely on this. And then the Gemara tells us the story of how Rabbi Akiva likewise left his wife for 24 years. So the Gemara is relating the story of Rabbi Akiva after it tells us about how our Rabbanon are assigned to leave their wives, but they pay a price for it. And sometimes it's the price for unintended actions. There are consequences to them. The other Gemara, the other Gemara that tells us Rabbi Kiva's story with his oh, leaving his wife for 24 years is the Gemara that tells us the positive side of how Rabbi of how Rabbi Yudabar, Rabbi Loyan's wife lived, and then the Gemara tells us the story of Rabbi Akiva and his wife, almost as if to highlight Rabbi Akiva's leaving his wife for 24 years in two opposite ways, one with negative consequences, unintended though they may be the other with positive consequences. Why both? Because as we shall see, both lessons really come from Rabbi Akiva. Both of these lessons can be attributed back in time to Rabbi Akiva. Although, as we said, Chas Rabbi Akiva himself can't be held guilty personally because his wife encouraged him to do that. But as we said, there are unintended consequences. Even if the unintended consequences are of a shlili nature, or in a passive way, Namely, that he just didn't have the opportunity to teach his disciples properly the way the way Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy was able to. Because Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy, living his life, may not have even realized that his students are learning from the way he's living his life. Maybe that was an unintended lesson of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy. He lived his life a certain way, and an unintended lesson, his students learned from him how to treat each other. That's what we see. The way Rabbi Yehuda Bar Rabbi Loi and his wife lived, 
the way Rabbi Yudah by Rabbi Loy treated his wife as an unintended lesson of that, his students learned how to treat each other. And maybe the same thing was true with Rabbi Akiva. As an unintended lesson of how Rabbi Akiva didn't live with his wife, his students didn't treat themselves respectfully. Rabbi Yudah by Rabbi Loy's students treated each other respectfully. They had shisha, miskasen, betalas, echod, as Rabbi Shechaim Shmulevitz explains, they were worried about each other. There was brotherhood amongst them. There was concern and sensitivity amongst them. They treated each other respectfully. Says the Margolius Hayyam, where did they learn it from? They learned it from Rabbi Yehudah Rabbi Loy's own life, the way he lived with his wife. The way the Rebbe and his wife lived, that's the way the Talmudim treated each other. That's the combined message from Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz and the Margolius Hayyam. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz teaches us that the students were able to treat each other very respectfully. Margolius Hayyam adds that they learned this lesson from the Rebbe, from the way the Rebbe lived his life. Not from what he preached, but from what he practiced. And maybe it was even an unintended lesson, but they learned it nonetheless. But the truth is it's much more complex than that because we have to see two aspects of Rabbi Akiva's life. Now, with an eye to this lesson, let us read the Gemaras that deal with this story more carefully in terms of Rabbi Akiva's life. The Gemara in the dorm will just take one of the... the we said that it's in two places, it's in the dorm as well as in Ksubas. We'll just take the one from the dorm randomly because it teaches us some other lessons as well. Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Akiva married the daughter of Kalba Sabua, who was a very wealthy girl. She was a, like a princess. She was a, a spoiled Jewish girl, one could say. As a result, Bar Kalba Sabua was Mader Hanoah, and, and this avowed her of any kind of, of inheritance, that she couldn't derive any benefit from his property. They got married in terms of the, the, the suin. It wasn't the winter time. At this point, they sort of, I guess one could say, similar to an elopement, where they had to literally run away to get married. It wasn't the winter time. And this poor daughter of Kalba Savua, who used to be very wealthy, and she was a very pampered girl, but because of her devotion to her husband, Rabbi Akiva, was willing to live with him in dire poverty. They got married in the winter, and therefore, Havagonu Tivna they would have to live covering themselves in straw. It was winter time, and it's cold, and therefore they would sleep on top of straw and cover themselves with straw, because they didn't have any blankets to cover themselves. Every morning when they would get up, he would see his poor wife, Rabbi Kiva would see his poor wife, the formerly rich and pampered daughter of Kalba Savua, with, with straw stuck in her hair, and he would pluck it out of her hair, he would pluck the hair, the straw from her hair. Omer Lord, he felt so bad about it. And he said, One day, if I ever become wealthy, if I ever have it to afford it, I will buy you a tiara, a crown, with the picture of your shalim made out of gold. He felt bad for the poverty of him and his wife. One day, Elio Anovi came to them as disguised as a human being. And he knocked on their door, and he said, Can you please give me a little bit of hay, a little bit of straw, because my wife is about to go into labor, and we don't even have any straw to, to sleep on, to lie on. This cheered up Rabbi Kiva, this heartened him a little bit, because Rabbi Kiva said, Take a look. He told his wife, 
see how there are people that are poorer even than us. They don't even have straw to lay on. We at least have straw to lay on. This, by the way, is a, a lesson that Rabbi Kiva learned from one of his other Rebbein, which is Nochumish Gamzu was one of his Rebbein. He learned from him the lesson of Gamzu Latov, as the Gemara tells us the famous story of Rabbi Akiva with the, with the donkey and the rooster and, and the light. Again, Rabbi Kiva learned very much from his Rebbein. He learned different things. In terms of Midas and Gamzu Latov, he learned from Nochumish Gamzu. He tells his wife, See, we have what to be thankful for. Amrulay, she tells him, Go, go and learn. Go to a Beis and learn. And he went, and it says he learned for 12 years before Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua. As we said earlier, two of Rabbi Kiva's main rebbeim was Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus and Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. He went for 12 years to learn by Rabbi Eliezer and by Rabbi Yeshua. This is the famous part of the story that everybody's familiar with. After 12 years, he's going back home and he hears from his home someone is speaking to his wife, a wicked person speaking to his wife, and says, Take a look. You deserve what your father did to you, that you lost all of your inheritance. And furthermore, take a look at what your husband did, that he now forsakes you and he leaves you like a living widow. You're a living widow. All of these years, 12 years, he forsook you. And what is her response? Omrulei, If he would listen to me, Halavai, he'd be away for another 12 years in order to learn to become a great sage. Omar, he said to himself, If she gives me permission, Let me go back and go back where I came from. And let me return and continue learning. That's exactly what he did. Hodar, Ozel, Havitati, Sorishnin, he went back for another 12 years. So the Gemara says that Rabbi Akiva went back and returned to learn Torah. But again, as we see, he did it with his wife's permission. That means he came home thinking that his time is up. Only with her permission did he go back and learn. So unlike the previous part of the Gemara that says that the Talmud Chachom would leave without their wife's permission, that's not true with Rabbi Akiva. He did go with his wife's permission. In any case, he returns. Here the Gemara uses the expression, he returned to 24,000 couples of Talmidim. Seems to be mistaken, the Girsub of those 24,000 students altogether. So maybe it should be 24,000 students or 12,000 Zugin Talmidim, 12,000 couples of Talmidim, as we said earlier. He comes back with all of these students. The whole world comes to greet him. And she also goes out to greet him. And at that point, this other, this wicked person tells her, you're not dressed properly, whatever the case may be. And he says, don't worry, In any case, it says that as she comes out, when she goes out to greet him, the, the rabbis, in other words, his students, pushed her away. She comes to meet her husband. They push her away. He tells them, he tells his students, leave her be. All the Torah that I have and all the Torah that you have, I attribute to her. She deserves the credit for it. Rabbi Kiva gave her all the credit. So what do we see in the story? We see firstly how Rabbi Akiva left only with her permission. It's interesting, I once tried to make the following calculation and it would seem to be that the calculation has some merit to it. That based on what what the Gemara and Medrashim and Ovesdrav Nosson and the Sifri tell us, 
Rabbi Akiva began his career at age 40. That's when he began the study. Apparently this 24 years is after the age 40. If we calculate the total life of Rabbi Akiva, and he died according to historians after the revolt of Bar Kokhba, which would be around the year 135, 136, it's estimated, it's calculated that he died around the year 138, which would mean that he was born in the year 118 since Rabbi Akiva lived for 120 years. Rabbi Akiva lived to 120, that's what the Sifri says at the end of Zosa Bracha. And if he lived for 120 and he died in 138, that means he was born in the year 118. If he began his learning at age 40, again as it says in Ovis Rabnasan and other sources, that would mean that it was in the year 58 that he began learning. He was born in the year 18, he then went off to learn Torah at age 40, that would be in the year 58. If he returned after 12 years and then he turned around, then that particular episode would have occurred in the year 70, because he began in the year 58, went away for 12 years, came back home in the year 70, turned around and went away for another 12 years to the year 82, making it a total of 24 years. The year 70 was the year of the Khurban. That was the year of the Khurban Beis Hamikdash. It's a pella when one thinks about it. The devotion, the self-sacrifice of Rabbi Akiva and his wife to the learning of Torah. That here it's the year 70. The Beis Hamikdash is being destroyed. The wars, the revolt against Rome is at its climax. And now Rabbi Akiva finally is coming home to see what's happening with his wife. Twelve years. Twelve years of the most traumatic times that the Jewish people were living through, Rabbi Akiva is off peacefully learning Torah and his wife with devotion, dedication and self-sacrifice is willing to let him sit and learn Torah away from the year 58 to the year 70. Amazing. It's incredible. It would then make sense maybe why he came home. He lived in B'nai Brak, or maybe at this point he's still living in B'nai Brak, but wherever it was, it certainly wasn't Yerushalayim. He goes back in the year 70 to, to check on his wife. It would make sense that he'd be coming home. And he still hears his wife saying, Halavai, he goes off and learns another 12 years. And sure enough, Rabbi Kiva turns around and goes off to learn another 12 years. Remarkable. It's incredible. It's mind-boggling that in the year 70, when there's a Chorben Beis Hamikdash occurring, when there's wars and persecution and death and, and all kinds of dangers, Rabbi Kiva's off learning and he seemingly is only coming home then and it makes sense why he's coming home at that year to check on his wife and she's saying go away another 12 years and he goes away without even stopping at the home and, and all the Mephorshim try to understand how come Rabbi Kiva didn't even come in for a few minutes at least to say hello to her and there's different shot and one shot that they say is 2 times 12 isn't the same as 1 times 24 possibly one could say because Bittal Torah of a few minutes once it's not needed is the equivalent of Bittal Torah of, of a greater time frame that's Rabbi Kiva's greatness that he appreciated even a few moments of time perhaps according to what we're saying now maybe Taka he should have come up again I am very hesitant to be able to say any kind of criticism of what Rabbi Akiva did in spite of what we're saying now about consequences but we, we don't know in any case he turns around and he goes back to learn Torah for a total of 24 years even if my calculation is somewhat off but this would be based on historical accounts and records and based on what Chazal say but nevertheless certainly however one wants to understand it the 24 years that Rabbi Kiva was away from his wife was certainly during very trying periods of Jewish history because it was certainly 
at least either before the Chorban or after the Chorban. It was an era of terrible persecution, upheaval in the Jewish world. Nevertheless, one has to understand that for 24 years, he was away from home in the period of the greatest and most tremendous upheaval in Jewish history. All kinds of cataclysmic events, earth-shattering events were occurring, and Rabbi Kiva was away learning Torah 24 years. We have to understand what that means. What does it mean to learn Torah 24 years in that period of history? It would be like someone going away to learn Torah in the year 1910 and then coming back in the year 1934. Could one imagine such a thing? A husband and wife, and the husband goes off to learn Torah in the year 1910 and comes back in the year 1934. But that's what we have with Rabbi Kiva. It's, it, it's incredible. Her devotion as well as his devotion. Is there something critical about this? Is there some negative unintended consequences? Possible. Possibly there is a negative, unintended consequence. It doesn't mean Chasham to criticize Rabbi Kiva because he's praised for this. She certainly is praised for this. But what we're saying now, though, is something else. Is that the Talmidim never learned from their Rebbe how to treat a wife. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe they thought that he left without permission. Just like Rava says that our custom is that we leave our wives without permission. We leave our wives for years to learn Torah without permission. Then the Gemara tells us the story of Rabbi Kiva. In his case, it was with her encouragement. She's the one that told him to go. She's the one that told him to go. But did the Talmudim know that? Did the Talmudim appreciate that? Obviously not. Because Rabbi Kiva then has to say, It's her encouragement. They're pushing her away. What does that mean they're pushing her away? Who are you to come and see Rabbi Akiva? And Rabbi Kiva says, Leave her be. It's her encouragement that, that made me learn all this Torah. And therefore, the Torah of the 24,000 Talmidim was flawed. The Torah of the 24,000 Talmidim came to them with a defect. It was defective Torah. It couldn't survive. It's not the Torah that could survive. Maybe it wasn't Rabbi Kiva's fault. Maybe it was. Maybe he's held accountable. Maybe this is a criticism of him. Or not. Maybe it's just a law of unintended consequences. Just like there are unintended negative consequences, there could also be unintended passive consequences. Torah that's learned, when the Talmudim learn this kind of a faulty understanding of human relationship, is Torah that's learned defected. And that kind of Torah can't last. Therefore, they were all destroyed. Does it mean that this was a sin, and as a result of the sin they died? No, we said earlier. We said earlier from the Nitziv, that when people don't get along, there's going to be consequences. And certainly if one understands that the 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva were part of the revolt against the Romans, and as a result of the fact that they didn't have this internal unity, there were 12,000 pairs rather than, than 24,000 that are together. They weren't able to properly fight the Romans, as we know earlier, that Dovra Melech and his generation, they were scholars, they were Talmudah Chachomim, they learned Torah. They were the same thing, the same bright scholars of Rabbi Kiva's students. That's what the Medrash tells us. The Medrash tells us that the Tinoikos, that the, that the youths that followed Dovod HaMelech, they didn't sin. They didn't know what the taste of sin was. And they were able to, They were scholars, they were brilliant. And David prayed for them. Yet they died in battle because of 
Dilutorin, because there was this kind of a slander because they did not have to treat each other respectfully. That was a consequence, not a sin, but a consequence. They were great, they were brilliant, they were scholars, and they were tzaddikim, but they died nonetheless because of the Torah. They became students. If they fought in battle, if they fought in Betar, like some historians claim, then if it's Shaloi Noagu that's also going to have the same consequence. It's going to have the consequence that they're not that they're going to fall in battle. The Gemara in Yuvamis says that they died because of a plague. Again, others understand that the plague had to do with the battle as well. This is part of the this is part of the effects of battle. Or even if one understands the Gemara Poshat nevertheless, Talmide Rabbi Akiva the Gemara tells us Shalom Noagu Kovit So we don't have to invent our own criticism. The Gemara already tells us that why did they die Shalom Noagu Kovit Is it a punishment? It's a pella. 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva should be punished and die because of Shlonogu Kovit Or is the Gemara again telling us, like we see already, like Rabchaim Shmulevitz teaches us, and like we've seen from all the other stories, it's the law of nature, of spiritual nature, that when there's a Shlonogu Kovit it's going to lead to calamity. It's going to lead to death. You could be tzaddikim and you could be brilliant. In other words, by extension, one can lay the, some of the blame at the Rebbe who didn't teach them Kovit Zelazah. The Gemara doesn't quite say that, but we certainly see that Rabbi Akiva, with all of his learning and with all of his teachings, has 24,000 students, and because of Shloinagu Kovit Zelazah, they all die. So, what does that mean? What does that mean that Rabbi Akiva's 24,000 students, all those years, and all those students that he amassed, that they all die. All that teaching went to waste. That's, that's almost like what the Gemara is trying to tell us. And the number 24,000, and certainly this concept of Shneim Eser El of Zugim, Talmidim, 12,000 couples, isn't it paladic how those same 24,000 students were the 24,000 students that the Gemara tells us came back with the Rabbi Akiva and they pushed his wife away. And then we find those same 24,000 students guilty of Shlonogu Kovut Zelozem. That means they never learned from the Rebbe to be Lino Kovut. He has to tell them, leave her be. Shalivu Shalochem Shaloi. Apparently they never learned it. Could we blame it on Rabbi Akiva? Is the criticism his? Certainly part of the punishment is his. To have a Rebbe whose 24,000 students is devastating. And therefore something is wrong. Something is wrong with Talmidei Rabbi Akiva. Again, who are we to level any kind of criticism? But you know what? If the same way as the Margolius Hayom tells us, Omru Allah, Al Rabbi Yehuda Bar Rabbi Loi, Shoyu Shisha Talmidei Miskasim Betal Sachas, if the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us, to the credit of Rabbi Yehuda Bar Rabbi Loi, that his students acted in an amicable and respectful way with each other and they learned Torah and therefore the credit is given to the Rebbe there then in the passive way when the Gemara tells us that Rebbe Kiva had 24,000 students and they died for the opposite reason then by the same token as we give the credit to Rebbe Yudaba Rebbe Loi that his students according to Rebbe Chaim Shmulevitz had respect for each other which is what the Gemara is highlighting according to Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, the respect for each other, and that credit is being attributed to Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loi, as the Margolis Hayom says, that by the same token, when the Gemara tells us that 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva 
died Shaloy no Akukovat Zelos, and that's the opposite of the Talmudai Rabbi Yehuda Bar Rabbi Loi, and it's such a massive amount of students, and it's the exact same number as the number that came back with with Rabbi Akiva, and they pushed away his wife. So then, could we then attribute it as well that the Shlomo covered Zelazes something which they didn't pick up from the Rebbe that they should have, that the Talmidei Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loi did pick up from their Rebbe, and the Talmidei Rabbi Akiva didn't pick up from their Rebbe, and the same way that how do they pick it up from Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Loi? Inadvertently, it wasn't a lesson that he was teaching them by 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 preaching, but rather by practicing with his wife. They learned the lesson from their Rebbe how to treat each other respectfully from the way their Rebbe treated his wife. Did they then mistakenly, the students of Rabbi Akiva, did they mistakenly learn from their Rebbe how not to treat a wife? And that's what they were doing wrong based on what they didn't see from their Rebbe? And as symbolic of that, they pushed away his wife, they pushed away Rabbi Akiva's wife from him. Would the Talmudim of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy have done such a thing? Talmidim of Rabbi Kiva did. He corrects them. He chastises them. But you know what? These are the 24,000 students that already learned from Rabbi Kiva. That's a defected, a flawed Torah, a Torah that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not a Torah that could last. They lost. They lost out on being the ones to permanently be the Rebbeim of Klal Yisrael. That couldn't be the Kabbalah's Torah from those 24,000 students. They died out. means that their Torah was also defected. It means all of those 24 years of Rabbi Akiva, where he amassed these 24,000 students, was defected, was flawed, was wasted. They died. But then, there is an opposite lesson from Rabbi Akiva as well. Because the Gemara then goes on and says the following. Back to the Gemara. In Yivam the Samach Beis on the Beis, it says, The world was desolate, without Torah. It was without Torah. I mean, Twenty-four thousand students of Rabbi Akiva died. The world is desolate. At Rabbi Akiva, So finally, Rabbi Akiva came to our rabbis of the south, the Shonolim, and he taught them again. And now. He taught him a new, reinvigorated Torah. This was the second, the second coming, if you will, of Rabbi Akiva. The second teaching, the second batch of students. Here there were only five, though. Not 24,000. They were Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yaisi, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Lozer ben Shamua. Who is this Rabbi Yehuda? Very interesting. This is Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi. The five students of Rabbi Akiva that he finally retaught the Torah and reestablished the Torah. The world was desolate until he taught these people Torah. Who were they? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Loza ben Shemua. This was Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Loi, who had the six students that learned Torah with one talus. This was the same Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Loi, who treated his wife in such a respectful way. It's a pillow. Now, where did Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi get it from? But this, according to uh, the, the understanding of, of most Mephorshim, is Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi. They, and what does the Gemara say about them? The Haim Haim Hamidu Torah. They are the ones that established Torah for all time, for eternity. Now it makes sense also what, what 
Rav Chaim Shmuel had said earlier. He said that when we're talking about Isha Yiras Hashem Hitzhal, the Dorosh Shal Reviewed by Rabbi Loi, we're talking about Kabbalah's Torah, not merely learning Torah, but the establishment of Torah. Just like Moshe and Yoshua established Torah, just like Chizkiah re-established the Torah, Rabbi Yudha bar Rabbi Loi also established the Torah. Says Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, if we're dealing with Kabbalah's Torah, we need all of the prerequisites of Kabbalah's Torah. The Gemara actually says this. The Hain Hain Hamidu Torah. These were the establishments of the Torah for all eternity. That means it was an era of Kabbalah's Torah, and for that you need both elements, Mesiris Nefesh and Achdus, and love and brotherhood, and Noagu Kovit Zelza. Therefore, the first batch of Talmudim of the 24,000 Talmudim couldn't survive because they're not the ones to establish Torah for all time. Because to establish Torah for all time, for Kabbalah's HaTorah, you need both elements. As Rukhan Shulavitz brings out from the Archaim HaKodesh, you need, besides the Mesiris Nefesh, you also need Achtus. You need Shalom. You need the Keish Echod Belev Echod for the, to be Maimit Torah, to establish Torah, Kabbalah's Torah, Hamada's Torah. The establishment of Torah needs that as a prerequisite. And the 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva lack that. They had a defected, flawed Torah. It couldn't last. It wasn't an era, a generation. It wasn't an era and a generation of Kabbalah's Torah, that kind of Torah. Those students. The Torah of those students wasn't a Torah of Kabbalah's Torah, wasn't a, a Torah of being Maimit Torah. Only these five students of Rabbi Akiva and their disciples, such as the disciples of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy, the Shisha Talmidim Iskasin, Betalas Echos, Vooskin Betorah, that door was a door of Yiras Hashemi Tesal, Zadorah Shalom Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy. That is the, the generation, the Haim Haim Hamidu Torah, as the Gemara in Yavamas tells us. The Gemara then just continues to say, how did the Talmudim of Rabbi Kiva die? He says they died from Pesach to Shuz, as we said earlier. What is the lesson of Pesach to Shuz? That's the time of Kabbalah's HaTorah. In other words, they couldn't be the ones to establish Torah because they lacked the Vayicha Yisrael Neged Ha'or. If when Klal Yisrael comes to Har Sinai on Shuz, and it says Vayicha Yisrael Neged Ha'or Kishachot Echot, that to be in the Kabbal Torah, you needed Achtus. Then these 24,000 students, couldn't possibly be the ones to be Maimitar of Yisrael because the Pesach Vadatzeres is a time for preparation for Torah, for the Kabbalah Satorah. They didn't have it. That was the time of Kitshrug against them because that was a time when you needed That's a time of Noag and Kovod Zelozeh. And if they were then they were the ones that had to die. They died during that period. Again, was it a punishment for terrible sins? Or was it merely a consequence? Maybe they died in battle? Then the Gemara says, no. So again, some of these things are possibly allegorical. Some of them contain hints. They may be related. don't want to get into the historicity of it, but it's quite possible that what we're dealing here with is not a plague of punishment, but a plague of consequence, which would then tie in with all that Reb Chaim Shmulev has taught us, as well as the other Gemara that we said. We see consequences. We see consequences against Rabbi Gamliel, against Rabbi Akiva himself, for doing the right thing. But 
Bein Adam Lechaver's consequence. Maybe this is as a result. Obviously, according to Reb Chaim Shmuel Levitz's entire principle, when you're dealing with Bein Adam Lechaver, it doesn't have to be the severity of the sin that brings about death. It's a consequence of those sins that brings about death. So therefore, if it's a Shloinu Kovat Zelozeh, the fact that they died, we don't have to search for causes of the sin to see how terrible it is. If it's a Bnei Shloinu that's sufficient enough for us to know that as a consequence of that, yes, 24,000 can die. Not as punishment, but as consequence. And then we could just look for the political, historical cause, but the Gemara tells us the root spiritual cause. Then it's interesting how the Gemara right after this, right after this, this Gemara that tells us about the death of these Talmidim, begins to talk about Kodam Sheinu Isha, Shori B'loi Simcha, B'loi Bracha, B'loi Taiva, B'loi Taira, and B'loi Chaima. Ha-Shori B'loi Isha, Shori B'loi Taira, you're lacking Torah. So the Gemara is telling us, again, with this, another message, right after the story of the Talmud of Kiva's death, how if you don't have a wife, you're incomplete, you're lacking. Is it a sin? Partially. But more than that, you're lacking. It's deficient. You're deficient. The person is deficient. He doesn't have the opportunity of Ben Adam Lechavero, of fulfilling which primarily refers to a person's wife. According to Chazal, is primarily fulfilled with the wife. You don't have that opportunity. And therefore you're shori below Torah, the Torah is defective. The Torah is incomplete. It's a flawed, incomplete, deficient, defective Torah. 24,000 Talmudim of Rabbi Kiva died. There was a defective Torah there. Could it be attributed to their Rebbe? Well, if we say, on the one hand, that Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Lois Talmudim learned how to deal and treat each other from the way the Rebbe treated his wife and lived with his wife, from the way he practiced, not from what he preached, and one can say the same possibly about Rabbi Akiva. Not that Rabbi Akiva is at fault, but they mistakenly learned the wrong lesson. And whenever that happens, there's a consequence, an inadvertent consequence. If Rabbi Akiva's wife suffered for 24 years, and the Talmudim learned the wrong lesson from that suffering, they learned from that that you could push her away, rather than Shalivi Shalochem Shalohi, then there's a consequence to that misunderstood lesson that mislearned lesson and the consequence was that their Torah couldn't stand their Torah couldn't be the one to give Kiyum to Klal Yisrael and they had to and they died but how was the relationship of Rabbi Kiva to his wife was it one merely of the wrong lesson being learned not quite those times that he was plucking when he was plucking the straw from her hair and he felt her pain and he promised her I'm going to one day give you a crown of gold with Yerushalayim pictured on it. He fulfilled that pledge, that promise. He loved his wife and she loved him and they lived together very respectfully. In fact, the Marsha, the Marsha on the Dorm and Teson Beis and Afnun says that the reason why the Gemara brings down the two stories of Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Akiva is because they both lived in this poverty, husband and wife. Rabbi Yehuda and his wife lived in poverty and they didn't want to take from others. And Rabbi Kiva and his wife also lived in this terrible poverty. And that's why Rabbi Kiva says that if one day I have the wherewithal, I become wealthy enough, I will make you a golden tiara. In fact, many halachas are learned from this tiara of Rabbi Kiva, this golden crown of Yerushalayim, and his custom of Sech, the Shabbos, other places. This became a very famous gift 
this gift that Rabbi Kiva ultimately did fulfill his pledge and brought her this gift became a very famous gift and it's mentioned in Shas in many places. But what's interesting then is that the story of Rabbi Akiva and his wife and 24,000 students that he came back with is mentioned in two places. One place is together with Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loy and his wife. The other place, as we said earlier, is the Gemara in, in Ksubis that says about husbands that leave their wives. Over there it's in a negative, here it's in a positive. Why is it mentioned twice in these two places? The truth is because Rabbi Akiva taught us both lessons. One, we see as we're saying now, that the coincidence of 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva dying, as well as 24,000 students being the ones that came back with him, isn't lost on us, especially in light of what the Gemara Ksubis tells us, that when you leave your wife, you suffer dire consequences. You suffer negative results from the negative energy that's produced by the fact that you leave your wife. And 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva died. Yet, five disciples of Rabbi Kiva the second time did make it, did manage to survive, and they're the ones that established Torah for all time. And now the Gemara tells us the story of Rabbi Hudabar Rabbi Loy and his wife, and the story of Rabbi Akiva and his wife, and juxtaposes the two of them together. Why this juxtaposing of this story? Well, we've understood already why we juxtapose the story of Rabbi Akiva leaving his wife for 24 years, and those, and Rabbi Rukhumi that left his wife and didn't come back and suffer the consequences of dying. To teach us the law of unintended consequences even when your intentions are good. And in this case of Rabbi Kiva, he didn't suffer because his wife told him to go. He was really merely listening to his wife. But the law of unintended consequences finally came to fruition in his students that they died. So why then the other story of Rabbi Akiva juxtaposed with Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loy? Because the truth is that there's another lesson that we learned from Rabbi Akiva as to how to treat your wife. In Ovis Rab Nasan, in the sixth parak, in Mishnah Beis, it tells us a little bit more also about the background of Rabbi Akiva and his wife. It says that in those years of poverty, according to some of the verses, Chavilo shall teven, that was the straw, he would bring home, half of it he would sell, half of it he would use. His neighbors began to complain and said to Rabbi Akiva, Akiva rather, they called him then, you're causing us, us all the smoke. It's very annoying. It's a nuisance. Why don't you sell it and we'll give you money and you'll buy oil with it and with the oil you'll be able to learn. Said to Rabbi Akiva, no, I need this straw because I use this straw for many things. I gain a great deal from this straw. First of all, I burn it. Although it creates smoke, I'm able to learn with it. Secondly, it provides heat. And thirdly, I sleep on it. The Gemara then says, If a person is going to come to heaven and say, I was too poor to learn, they'll say, were you, were you poorer than Rabbi Akiva? Again, the Gemara in Shabbos says it's about Hillel. Ovis Rabbi Nassim says it about Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara then says, I mean, the Ovis Rabbi Nassim continues and says, ben holach He's 40 years old when he went off to learn Torah. He comes back after 13 years, and he was already a teacher, a master of Torah, teaching the whole world. Again, this is a slightly different gear than what we've had in other places, but that's not important for us at this moment. Amru, they said regarding Rabbi Akiva, 
that he fulfilled all of his pledges to his wife. He became wealthy, he had gold and silver tables, and he had a staircase that led up to his bed made out of gold. She went out with all kinds of gold jewelry. Yeshua explains that Kardomin art is a tachshit benoyz hamelach. It's a, some sort of a jewelry, a tachshit, an adornment that princesses wear. A me'il, some sort of a garment, maybe an embroidered cloak of some sort. And he bought her finally this tiara, this crown of gold, tachshit shel zov, where Yushalayim was engraved, carved in it, which he promised her. She originally promised her. So she came out bedecked in all of this gold jewelry and this embroidered clothing. Omrulo Talmidov, very telling this last part of the Ovas Rabnosan. His Talmidim said to him, Who are these Talmidim? Omrulo Talmidov. His Talmidim said to him, Which Talmidim? Certainly not the 24,000 original students who died. Omrulo Talmidov, Rebbe, Biyashteni Mimashosisolo. You have embarrassed us for what you have done, provided for your wife so much. As the Binyan Yeshua explains, It is an embarrassment for us in front of our wives. That our wives, we don't treat as respectfully and give her all of this honor and, and glory that you've given her. It's an embarrassment to us that your wife goes out bedecked with all this jewelry and you give her so much honor that it puts the rest of us to shame that don't do such things for our wives. For what you do for your wife puts everyone else to shame that doesn't match that. You treat your wife so special. What does Rabbi Akiva answer his Talmidim? They said to him, Talmidov Rabbi, Rabbi, You put us to shame for all that you've done for her. So much chashivus you give her. Omar Lohemsi answers them, She's a very special woman. She she suffered great pain, great suffering, that I should learn Torah. As the Binyan Yeshua says on this, that she lived with me with such great deprivation, and she gave me permission to go and to learn, as it says in the Mesechtas and the Dharm. We see clearly from the Binyin Yeshua, that we're dealing with the other batch of Talmidim. Because the first batch understood all of this. He has to tell these Talmidim that are saying, Rebbe, what are you giving her so much for? Why are you treating her in a way that's going to put the rest of us to shame that we're not treating our wives like that? What is so special? Says Rebbe Kiva, because she's indeed very, very special. She's the one that allowed me to go learn all those years. In other words, the previous Talmidim never understood this concept. Now Rabbi Akiva is teaching his Talmidim how to treat his wife. And maybe Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Loi was one of the students that learned this lesson from Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva taught different lessons to different students in different periods of his life. 24,000 students, a massive amount, a massive number, so much Torah, but they lacked. It was a flawed Torah. It was deficient, that Torah that they learned. They didn't learn how to treat your wife. 
if you learn without your wife around, it's not really Torah. They wanted to push her away. And they, for themselves, never learned how to treat each other respectfully. But they never were able to learn from their Rebbe. Now Rebbe Kiv is correcting all of that. Now he's home again. Now he's home with his wife. And now the first 24,000 students that learned that defective Torah died out. And the world is desolate without Torah. Because a defective Torah isn't worth being established. But now Rebbe Kiv is teaching five new students. And these five new students that he's teaching, he's teaching a completed Torah. He's teaching a whole Torah and a wholesome Torah. And part of this Torah that he's teaching them is they see him now with his wife because he's home now. Now already he's teaching Rabbi Seinu Shebedorim. He's already the master Rabbi Akiva. He no longer has to go away from home for 24 years of learning Torah. He's home with his wife. And now that he's wealthy, because he became wealthy after this. The Gemara tells us six reasons how Rabbi Akiva became wealthy. One of them being that Kalbus Savua went back on his nether and now gave Rabbi Akiva a great deal of wealth. Now Rabbi Akiva came home after those 24 years of living in poverty and now he's a wealthy person and he lavishes on his wife. He spends on her and lavishes on her because she's a princess. She's the one that deserves all the credit and he shows the world that all the credit belongs to his wife and he treats her with such deference, such respect. He gives her such glory. He gives her so much. He lavishes her with so much in terms of adornments that everybody's wondering why. And he explains because she deserves all the credit. All of a sudden, these new Talmudim, Rabbi Seinu Shebedorim, are learning a new lesson from Rabbi Akiva. They're learning a lesson of Rabbi Akiva, of Ashori Be'isha, Ashori Be'simcha, Ashori Be'torah. He's living with his wife. It's a different Torah. It's a Torah of a husband and a wife that's united, that he's lavishing her. And he gives her all the credit and all of the deference. And he buys her these crowns, this golden tiara. And he buys her all of these adornments and garments. And he treats her like a princess, like a queen, like she deserves. Because now he could afford it and now he's living with her. And what did the Talmud learn from this? They say, you're putting us to shame. We're not treating our wives respectfully enough. And Rabbi Kiva says, yes, she deserves it because she suffered with me all those years and she encouraged my learning. So Rabbi Yehuda, his student, Rabbi Yehuda by Rabbi Loi, learned what does it mean that your wife goes into the marketplace and for the few pennies that you had, she buys some raw, coarse wool and she makes a cloak out of it. But that's all that you have. You have nothing more. And he says, Baruch Shoatani Mil. He makes a bracha. This is a royal robe. This is a royal cloak. Thank you, Hashem. You've given me a cloak that my wife created out of love and devotion. It's a royal garment that I'm wearing. And he shares it with his wife. He learned from his Rebbe what it means that your wife is a queen. To treat her like a princess. To treat her like a queen. And that what she does with love and devotion, you share with her. And everything that you have, you share with her. And the students of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi picked it up from their Rebbe. Just like Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi picked it up from his Rebbe, Rabbi Akiva. The students of Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi picked it up from their Rebbe. The Heim Heim Shemidu Torah This is the Torah that becomes established in Israel. Shisha Talmidim Miskasim Betalas Achas Isha Yiras Hashem Hitesalol. Zedorosh Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi. 
that they shared and they learned Torah together. Where did they get it from? They got it from their Rebbe. Who was the Rebbe? Rebbe Yudah Bar Rebbe Loi, who treated his wife with such great respect and love and, and affection that he would make the bracha. This is a royal garment that my wife made for me and I'm going to share it with her. And where did Rebbe Yudah Bar Rebbe Loi learn it from? He learned it from his Rebbe, Rebbe Akiva, who tells them, Har She was with me, Shalivi Shalochem, Shalohi. Mine and yours is hers. We share it together. She suffered with me greatly in Torah. She deserves all that. Rabbi Yudabar Rabbi Loi learned it from his Rebbe, Rabbi Akiva. But this was the second group of students. The group that was able to learn this. This is a complete Torah. This is the Shlemus of Torah. This is the Torah that the Gemara then Yivamas tells us after the death of the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. That called him Shaylo Isha Shori Bloy Simcha Bloy Bracha Bloy Taiva Bloy Taira Bloy Chaima. There's no Torah unless you're able to teach this lesson of Torah as well. The lesson of Shalom and the lesson of Shalom Bayis. And the two go together, as we see from these Gemaras. How you treat your wife becomes a lesson to your children, it becomes a lesson to your Talmidim. Shalom and Shalom Bayis go together. If there's Shalom Bayis and there's Shalom, between the Talmidim, between people. You learn, you learn from how you treat your wife and spouse, Shalom Bayis, to how you treat other people as well. That was a completed Torah. That was a Torah of the Haim Haim Hamidu Torah be Israel. They're the ones that established Torah for all time. They're the generation of Kabbalah's HaTorah with Messias Nefesh as well as with Shalom Vereus. Just like Rabbi Akiva with sacrifice, but with Shalom Bayis. It's the twin lessons that established Torah from all time. The first 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva, as massive and as great as that Torah was, was only a deficient one-legged Torah. It was only a Torah of Messias Nefesh, but not a Torah of Noah Kovat Zeboseh. It wasn't the Torah that they learned both prerequisites for Torah. They only learned one. They only learned Messias Nefesh. They never learned that first generation of students. Then he retaught them Bishana and then he taught them Torah again. And this time he taught them the Torah of Nisiras Nefesh as well as Shalom Bayes. The Torah of Nisiras Nefesh of the, all the self sacrifice that Rabbi Akiva and his wife together had for Torah. Harbe a great deal of toil and trouble and tribulation and tsar we suffered but we suffered together she suffered together with me for Torah and he taught them both lessons Torah requires Messias Nefesh Torah requires Shalom Vereus and that's Shisha Talmidim Miskasen Betalos Echot Six Talmidim in one cloak. And what did we say? There's a double lesson in that. There's a double lesson in Shisha Talmidim Miskasen Betalos Echos. The two lessons are Messias Nefesh and Avo Vereus. You need both lessons and Chazal enunciated with one phrase Shisha Talmidim Miskasen Betalos Achas, Vo'oiskin Betayra. 
six Talmidim in dire poverty with Nesiris Nefesh sharing together one garment. That's the essence of the Torah. The essence of the Torah of Kabbalah Torah and being Maimit Torah for Dorei Doris for Nitzchiyas is in that one lesson. Six students living in poverty but sharing one garment together. And they learned that from their Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Rabbi Loi, who also with his wife shared one garment together and learned Torah. And he learned that from his Rebbe, Rabbi Akiva, that said, Har Beitzar imi Torah. That's the essence of the Torah. Har Beitzar, much pain, much suffering, much agony. Nitztaro imi. She suffered together with me. We shared Torah in the Torah. Shaliv shalochem shalohi. We share the Torah together because we shared it in pain, but we shared it. And if you share, and you share pain. That's the essence of the eternity of the Torah. That's the lesson that Rabbi Akiva finally taught. And with all that massive Torah that he taught earlier, nothing came of it. Nothing came of the first 24,000 students. Because with all that Torah, Sefelt in Shalom Noah Gukovit so they died during that period of Kabbalah's HaTorah between Pesach and Shavuos. They died during that period because they lacked, it was a deficient Torah. It was Shori B'loi Isha B'loi Torah. But Isha Yiras Hashem Hitesawal, the generation of Rabbi Yudubar Rabbi Loi, who learned it ultimately from Rabbi Akiva in his second teaching of the Torah to the second group of Talmidim Rabbi Seinu Shebedoram when he finally taught them Torah on both legs, Torah of Messias Nefesh and Torah of sharing and unity and brotherhood and Shalom Bayis. That became the Torah that was established for all times and for all era. Quantitatively, it was only five students, but qualitatively, it became firmly established, entrenched, and became firmly rooted in Klal Yisrael for all of eternity. Torah of Nesiris Nefesh and Torah of Sholom and Sholom Bayis. Therefore, the story of Rabbi Akiva is taught in both places, in the Gemara and Ksubis, where we see the negative results, the consequences of an even unintended lesson to the 24,000 students to show us a defective Torah and taught again to us juxtaposed with Rabbi Yudah Bar Rabbi Loi because ultimately Rabbi Akiva taught us both lessons passively he taught us the negative consequences but then he taught us again as we see from Ovis Rab Nosen the positive contribution and consequences of treating your wife properly Rabbi Yudah Bar Rabbi Loi learned that lesson Torah became established for all of eternity as a result we also see how careful a Rebbe has to be because this law of unintended consequences applies to learning and teaching. That what your Talmidim learn from you by mistake or what your Talmidim learn from you by seeing how you practice, not merely how you preach. We also see that the way a person, the way a Rebbe treats his wife will have an effect, an impact on his Talmidim, how they treat their wives and as well as how they treat one another as well. And the Roshan that you have, that even by through no fault of your own, by just not teaching, by not being able to teach what to do with a wife, has a Roshan on a Talmud. Even if you yourself don't sin, they may come to sin. A Roshan, an impact, some effect has had 